This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the weekly Bunker Roundtable with me, Andrew Harrison. This week, we've had the hostile environment. What about being hostile to the environment? Sunak and Trust both say they're committed to net zero, but only 4% of Tory members think it's a top priority for the next government. The iPaper's environment correspondent, Madeleine Cuff, tells us what the contenders really want to do on climate policy. Plus, the NHS is facing its biggest staffing crisis in history. How do we get here and what would a sane government be doing to get us out? NHS commentator Roy Lilly explains it all. And are you ready for zombie robot spiders? I didn't make them up. They're coming to a production line in a factory near you. But should we really be meddling in what they're calling necrobotics? All that and more on this week's Bunker. Thanks for joining us here on The Bunker. A quick reminder that you can support our work on the crowdfunding platform Patreon. For as little as £2 a month, you too can join our angry mob and get the show early and ad-free, plus great merchandise. Search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out more. You can also help us out by filling out our listener survey. The link is in the show notes, so why not multitask and do it now while you're listening to the podcast. Let's meet today's panel. First up, welcome back to former diplomat, host of the essential and terrifying podcast Doomsday Watch, and author of How Britain Broke the World, Arthur Snell. Hello, Arthur. Hi, Andrew. Arthur is joining us from Canada. You can probably tell from the uh, sound effects in the background. Arthur, it's a very tense week. U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi became the most senior U.S. politician in 25 years to visit Taiwan, and China said that America would pay a price for the trip. It responded by firing missiles into the sea and over Taiwan. I mean, these exercises have happened before, but does the tension feel different this time around? Well, they they have happened before, but what China has said it's planning now, which is a a series of exercises in the coming days, uh, goes further than anything they've ever done before. Um, and the other thing that's new is that China is militarily far more powerful uh, than it was, you know, say in the mid '90s when there was a, an arguably similar crisis. So it's, uh, you know, one doesn't want to over dramatise things, but I think this is a this is an especially uh, difficult phase at, uh, in in this ongoing crisis. And meanwhile, Russia and Ukraine are blaming each other for the shelling of the Zaporizhia nuclear plant. The UN nuclear watchdog is one of a very real risk of a nuclear disaster. Uh, how worried should we be on a scale of one to blind panic? I certainly don't want to advise blind panic, but I think we, we ought to put our, our concern level somewhere near there. For those who, who might have had the chance to listen, I, I did a um, bunker interview with Sergei Plochy, who is a, he's a Ukrainian 
historian and he's written a brilliant book about nuclear disasters. And as it happens, he's a native of Zaporizhia. So he's a man who, as a native of also the country that, of course, experienced a Chernobyl disaster, probably has a right to, uh, to, to an opinion on these issues. It's a brilliant book, but also uh, it's very sobering. You know, uh, all nuclear energy is, is potentially catastrophic catastrophic if, if it's not handled properly. I'm not saying this is an anti-nuclear stance. It's just, you know, that's a statement of fact. And uh, it's, it's really troubling what's happening there in that the largest nuclear plant in Europe. Also back on the show, we have writer and editor Justin Quirk. Hi, Justin. Hi, Andrew. So there was one small ray of light and happiness last week when a Texas jury ordered the TV conspiracy theorist Alex Jones to pay more than $49 million in damages to the parents of a boy killed in the Sandy Hook shooting in 2012. Texas caps punitive damages at £750,000 per plaintiff, but the parents' lawyer thinks that can be challenged. I mean, Jones is an absolutely odious figure. Do you think this will make any difference to the ecosystem of disinformation that's warping American politics? Not to Jones himself. I mean, I think he is beyond reach or reason at this point and has made himself extremely rich from doing so. Um, Where I think it's potentially more interesting is downstream from Jones. You have an entire ecosystem of grifters and platforms who have seen how lucrative his model is and have sort of followed in the slipstream of that. I think what this trial has spelled out very clearly is that that era of Web 2.0, where you could have very large-scale reach and still act with complete impunity, is over, at least within America and when you're within America's jurisdiction. Um, so I think, and I'm cautiously hopeful, that these kind of awards do have a chilling effect, if not on Jones, then on the people further down the line, who also, let's not forget, don't have recourse to his kind of legal uh, representation. Our special guest is environmental correspondent for the iPaper, Madeline Cuff. Hello, Madeline. Welcome to the bunker. Hello. So we're going to be talking about the Tory candidate's position on the environment later, but uh, celebrities are also the big villain in this this week. According to the sustainability marketing firm Yard, Taylor Swift is the biggest celebrity polluter of the lot. She travelled on her private jet a total of 170 times since January, and her average flight time was just 80 minutes. If you were not a Swifty before, I'm guessing you're not a Swifty now. Uh, Not particularly, no. I mean, these stories are a bit of fun. We see them regularly crop up when we see kind of Boris Johnson flew 40 minutes on a plane to a campaign rally or, yeah, like Taylor Swift taking an 18-minute flight. I mean, they do point to a serious point in that, you know, with the... With the proliferation of social media, we're all kind of benchmarking our level of success in the world against what celebrities are doing. And if taking a private jet becomes the kind of the new thing to aspire to, then that's probably a dangerous precedent to set. But I mean... Is it celebrity private jet use that is driving the breakdown of the climate? Not really. It's sort of become an excuse at the back of people's minds of like, well, you know, I'm fine to be driving a, a you know a burnt out 1975 kind of uh, you know terrible Ford because the real villain's Taylor Swift. Yeah, it's it's always easy to point to somebody with a bigger footprint than you. Um, on flying, particularly, I think it's something like. Fifteen percent of the UK's population take seventy percent of the flights, so it is the richest um, in society that are doing the most flying. So that's not wrong to point out. But yes, when it's kind of used as an excuse for everybody else not to do anything, that's when it becomes dangerous. So let's take a look at those Tory Green policies or lack thereof. While Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak have been vocal over their visions for the British economy, both Tory leadership hopefuls are much quieter about their plans for tackling climate change. 
Truss and Sunak faced just one question on the environment during their first two head-to-head debates, with the issue claiming less than two minutes of airtime. So why is the issue so low on the agenda and what do the candidates really think about the environment? Madeline, climate change is, you know, arguably the biggest challenge facing us. I can't think of a bigger one. Why is it so far down the agenda in this leadership contest? I mean, it's honestly been pretty baffling for a party that hosted COP26 last November in Glasgow, and it was the kind of flagship of Boris Johnson's campaign. It seems to have kind of dropped off the face of the earth in this leadership election, and it's incredibly frustrating for both for business leaders, obviously for environmental journalists, but for business leaders, for ministers, for you know companies that just need to get things done and they need to know the direction of travel, and for people trying to pay their energy bills this winter. I mean, the issue of home insulation, home energy efficiency has completely fallen off the radar. Um, As to why that is, it's an interesting question. I think it has to do with the internal dynamics of the Conservative Party. So you've seen the likes of Steve Baker and his net zero scrutiny group rise in power over the last probably 18 months. And there's been a heavy lobbying operation within Westminster to kind of push the party to the right, particularly on climate issues. And with the kind of with the leadership election, the, the, the candidates are enthralled to the party in a way that they are not when they are, you know, in Downing Street itself. So they're treading a tricky line between they'll have seen the polling to suggest that the general public really cares about this issue and wants to see action. But the parliamentary party, frankly, doesn't seem that bothered. And so they've got to kind of swing to the right to to win over that side of things. And then I guess worry about the general electorate when they get into power. Both candidates have ostensibly committed to the net zero target. And Do you think that they really are? Is it lip service? Have you seen any sort of real substance behind it? Yeah. I mean, to be fair to both of them, they have committed to net zero by 2050. I'm not sure that you could say either Rishi Sunak or Liz Truss are particularly passionate or interested in environmental issues. I mean, there was a um, a briefing by Sir Patrick Vallance, the chief scientific advisor, a few weeks ago to all MPs in Parliament and not one of the Conservative Conservative leadership um, candidates turned up to that. So I think that's probably an indication of where the kind of personal interest lies. I mean, I think that they kind of split down the line on different on different issues. So Rishi Sunak, to be fair to him, has done has said a little bit more about energy and net zero and has promised to bring forward a new energy efficiency scheme to help households struggling with their fuel bills. He did a bit as chancellor on net zero finance and popped up at COP26. Liz Truss has stayed much more under the radar when it comes to net zero and climate issues, but she has said a little bit more on nature. She's championed beavers. She's promised to look after uh, nature, which appeals to the kind of traditional conservative Mm. voter. And she's won the support of Zach Goldsmith, who is um, one of the environment ministers in Boris Johnson's government and is seen as kind of one of the leading green figureheads within the party. So, I mean, they've both made the tiny baby steps towards any sort of agenda, but I don't think that there's kind of a credible policy package from either of them about how to kind of push this issue forward. And Truss has said that one of her first acts will be to temporarily scrap the Green Levy. Has the Green Levy been a success? What will be the impact of her removing it? I have so many questions for Liz Truss about this um, policy and I, I haven't seen any kind of detailed questioning on it. So the Green Levy, the first thing to say is that it makes up a really small proportion of bills and falling. So with each 
price hike that Ofgem announces, the proportion that the green levy represents shrinks each time. And what it's made up of is the green levies are made up of a number of different things. So there's um, discrete policies around helping the fuel poor become more energy efficient. So that is helping the poorest in society pay less in their energy bills. So that's good both from a kind of social equality standpoint and from a climate standpoint. So there's there's those programmes which I think would be incredibly unpopular to cut at the current time. The other kind of chunk of the levy is made up of payments under basically defunct subsidy systems. So the feed-in tariff for solar panels, everybody, when they put solar panels on their house, they signed up for a feed-in tariff contract with the government and they are now getting a certain amount every month for generating solar. That that scheme has closed now, but the contracts were all for 25 years. So you have to keep paying them. I mean, it's a legal government requirement that you pay your contracts. So there's no way that you can just axe them temporarily. So the only solution then is to move that into general taxation. And so that's just that's just money management. That's not actually saving the taxpayer anything. That's just kind of taking one thing off energy bills and putting it onto general taxation, which most environmentalists think would be a good thing to do and is fairer. But I don't think Liz Truss is being upfront about it because it would disrupt her tax-cutting narrative. Sunak's talked about making the UK energy independent by investing in vital new technologies, which could mean almost anything. Is there any kind of meat on the bones there, do you think? I think he's quite keen on nuclear and nuclear has been a big um, part of Boris Johnson's agenda and it is correct that we do need to build more nuclear plants. It's a really contentious issue in the environment movement but our fleet of existing nuclear power plants are due to be retired and that energy needs to be replaced. So new nuclear is is a kind of must do for when it comes to net zero. But there's a kind of few contradictions in where Rishi Sunak's stance on on energy is so he is very pro offshore wind but mm. very anti onshore wind which is the cheapest form of new electricity generation that there is regardless of its kind of climate um, credentials so he's he's come out and said that he's against onshore wind and i think both candidates have said that they don't like solar farms either so that kind of makes getting a comprehensive energy policy that doesn't rely on importing gas from overseas, but that's tricky to do with without those kind of two base load nuclear um, renewables. So it's like green, but it's like NIMBY green, which it won't work. I think the way I would describe it is that it is green, but without any sense of ambition or, or radical action or the kind of the level of response demanded of by the urgency of the situation. So there's a few green policies here and there, but I think if you talk to most business leaders or most environmentalists, they would say that they need a government that acts with a green lens on everything. So everything should be filtered through the criteria of how does this help us get to net zero. Mm. And that, you know, that doesn't mean that you have to sacrifice jobs, you don't have to sacrifice economic growth, but the government should have an overriding thesis of we are going to get to net zero and that's going to be our overarching agenda. And I don't think either of the candidates can be seen to to have that. Justin, uh, for fans of uh, old logos, uh, Sunak's promised to re-establish the Department of Energy, which was merged into the Department for Business in 2016. I mean, he's not going to win. But does it make sense if he were to and were to do this? It would seem to. I mean, he so he told The Telegraph uh, in the interview last week that 
re-establishing the department would be a key part of what Madeline was discussing, this move towards being energy independent. He also promised to establish an energy security committee ahead of the coming winter to deal with the supply crunch and market reforms to cut the bills. Um, That all strikes me as fairly clear and sensible messaging, Um, essentially saying that the supply of energy, like all of your resources, is a crucial part of national security. Um, So it warrants its own office of state. That runs counter to what the previous move was under Theresa May, which seemed to regulate it to being just another facet of the market and saying this is just sort of another thing in the economy. Mm rather than something more integral. But with sort, and I think we're going to do this a lot today, that we keep coming back to the same problem, which is they're laying out these various sort of plans and strategies during a campaign which seems totally detached from reality. Mm. It just seems to have completely slipped the bonds of that. So you'll read something like a proposal to re-establish his office and think, that sounds pretty sensible. And then a couple of hours before we record, he releases this asinine video of him with a comically oversized printer shredding a giant wadge of papers marked E. And it's like, what is this? It's like Absol- a live political cartoon. It's like Brandt the physical cartoon. Yeah. It's physically shredding EU law. Yeah. It's I- like... I, just because you should tread the paper doesn't mean the law is no longer in effect, Rishi. That's not how it works. Yeah, I mean, it's not like you can't stand in front of, you know, your interlocutors in the EU and just sort of, like, dangle the paper above the shredder and be, like, you know, holding the gun to your head in the other hand. Like, just make me. I genuinely like, you know, I'm not a conservative. I can see why people vote conservative. I understand it as a organising principle for political society. I have no fucking idea who this is aimed at. Like, mm. I don't know who is looking at this stuff and not just feeling like their intelligence is getting insulted and drained away. It's like, I mean, I just, I don't know anyone who is going to look at that and think, why are you talking to me like a fucking seven-year-old? I just, I just do not get it. Europe has been trying to cut its gas usage since Putin's invasion of Ukraine. The German network regulator says Germans will need to cut at least a fifth of their energy consumption to avoid a gas shortage by December. You would imagine that energy security would be a great resource for the political right. Why is it not being sold in that way here? I have genuinely, not not just in this country, but across the world, I have failed to understand, I've been saying this for about five years, that this seems like a completely open goal politically. And one of the issues, few issues, which you could generate a genuine bipartisan dialogue on, in that, and you know, I don't know if it's the age of our population, the fact that geographically we often seem like a little removed from things, but appeals to voters on a purely environmental basis to like do the right thing because it will save the planet have not worked the way that they should do. Mm. Whereas this feels like if you can frame environmentalism as a fundamentally conservative thing, so it's almost like a quasi-military slash defence issue – that feels like something that you could imagine an older conservative yeah. voter would get on board with. And I thought it was telling in that same Telegraph interview. Two phrases Sunak kept coming back to were energy independent and also energy sovereignty. And I thought, I hadn't heard that last one before. And I thought, well, that latter one particularly sounds like someone who, even if they're not massively personally excised about the environment, has given some thought to the messaging about mm. how do you make this land with a load of 70-year-old golf club maniacs. Who could probably remember posters saying take a bath in two inches of water because they could remember rationing dimly well, one, in their youth. Well, or, you know, the fact that at every other opportunity these people bang on about the 1970s. Yes. <laughs> sort of 1940s, energy. yes. <laughs> yeah, one of the few things they could remember. But I've I've genuinely not understood why campaign groups have not, like, 
adapted this more and say basically make it sound like you know the militant wing of the national trust you know treat <laughs> energy independence as you know claw the money back from evil mr putin yeah arthur um in a recent times survey just four percent of tory members said that hitting the target of net zero emissions was one of their three priorities for the next tory leader is it this are we just completely at the mercy of the blue rinse wall here i think there is a factor there and it, it comes back to the whole structure of this method this crazy method of selecting a prime minister that it, it's down to this you know famously old white male group of people and therefore to play to that group you have to come up with insane policies and insane campaign videos including you know rishi with the shredder and so obviously 2050 and uh, i think the the well no one's quite sure but, but i think the median age of tory members is about 60 it might be more than that 2050 is an awful long way off if you're if you're in the seventh decade of your life and 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 you're probably not that bothered about it so i think that there is that problem that uh, to win this election you you don't have to you 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 talk down the whole net zero thing and of course we saw it earlier in the campaign kemi badenoch others all sort of pressing that button and then once whoever wins it looks like it's going to be liz trust then of course you'll have to try to tack back to the center but having you know, uh, handed a lot of this, these sort of ideas to, to her supporters, it's going to be hard for her to do that. Madeleine, just to, 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 to wrap this up, events and facts in the world do not care about political currents. You know, th- terrible things are happening around the world. We see them every night on the news. In a, in a perfect world, what would you like uh, the new prime minister to be prioritising on, on climate change? Take as long as you like. Oh, there's a question. Uh, well, firstly, I'd like to wind back time to January and I would like them to kind of have sat down and read the forecast and actually have done something on home energy efficiency. If we had spent the last eight months having a kind of national campaign where street by street we knock on people's doors and say, you are having loft insulation, you are having new windows, you are having cavity wall insulation, we're going to stick some solar panels on your roof then we would be in a far better state to deal with this coming winter than we are right now. And the fact that we are spending eight weeks having this kind of political crisis while we choose a new prime minister when there is a huge, huge crisis coming down the tracks for millions of people is completely baffling to me. So firstly, roll back time. Um, Secondly, better late than never. We need a new energy efficiency programme to help homeowners and crucially people in rented accommodations make their homes not only cheaper to run and warmer and more comfortable in the winter, but emitting less carbon. Buildings and transport are together the two highest sources of emissions for the whole of the UK. So those are the two things that we really should be tackling. So buildings, insulating as much as possible, rolling out heat pumps, rolling out solar panels um, and transport. Electric vehicles are sort of taking care of themselves. You see sales rising really rapidly. We need to get a handle on the infrastructure. So much more charge points, much more to address like on-street charges, um, but more investment in public transport as well and some sort of issue to deal with the growth in flying. So whether that's a frequent flyer tax or whether that is extra charges on flying or, I don't know, a new tax on fuel that will be then used to pay for research into hydrogen planes. I'm not sure, but there needs to be some creative thinking around flying as well. And then I guess lastly, I think that there is something to address around consumption patterns. Our whole UK economy is kind of based on the idea that we go out and hit the high street and that drives growth in the economy. And that is not a particularly sustainable way in which to drive growth. So there needs to be 
some clever thinking around what we incentivize people to buy and whether we incentivize people to repair goods more or to buy second hand cut business rates for your second hand shops or you know drive some incentives for for new sustainable business models so that you know it's not just popping down to the supermarket and buying a load of stuff is what generates growth in the economy so creative thinking is needed good luck with that well creative thinking but i think it's also um important to stress that i think the narrative that has kind of come out of this leadership campaign that you know we can't deal with net zero now because we just need to get through this next crisis you know first it was brexit then it was covid now it's russia ukraine and the energy crisis and i think what is missing is the statement of fact that this is not something to be kicked down the road and to be dealt with later this is something that will actually solve the problems that we have right now and it will save people money and it will drive growth. It's just a different kind of growth and it just requires commitment to it. And there is a blueprint in place. We have the Climate Change Committee, which is the government's official climate advisors, and they have literally drawn up the plan for what the government needs to do. All they need to do is dig out that document and implement the policies that they suggest. It's there waiting for them. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. The NHS is now facing the greatest workforce crisis in its history, putting patients at serious risk of harm. That's the verdict of the Health and Social Care Select Committee in a recent report on the staffing crisis which has engulfed the NHS. It's short of 39,000 nurses and 8,000 doctors, according to NHS Digital. The Nuffield Trust says the real figures could be as high as 50,000 and 12,000 respectively. How do we get here and does anybody have a plan to get us out of it? Joining us to discuss this, we're delighted to welcome back NHS commentator and friend of the podcast, Roy Lilly. Hi, Roy. How are you doing? Good afternoon. I'm super good. Thank you. Very pleased to be back. Thank you for having me. Thank God somebody is. So, Roy, forty to 50,000 nurses short, eight to 12,000 doctors short. Has there ever been a staff shortage as bad as this in the NHS? No, no, not in terms of numbers. But I mean, if if you if we go back to before BC, that time in in history known as BC before COVID, um, we went into COVID with about forty thousand vacancies for nurses, about three or four thousand doctors were short, um, and a waiting list of four and a half million. And then, of course, COVID came along, and we've all forgotten BC. Um, and now, of course, the whole situation's got much worse. So um, it's it's you know I've, I've I'm in. Well, let me just think. I joined the NHS in my mid mid twenties. I'm now in my mid seventies. So, in about fifty years, I don't think I can't imagine. I can't remember anything as bad as this. I really can't. Joe Public, like me, 
might put it straight down to terrible pay deals and Brexit producing a, a lack of available staff. Is that about right or is there more to it than that? Well, no, I mean, that's uh, that's top of the shop uh, problems, but it, it's a bit more to it than that. To, to really understand what's happened, we've got to kind of wind the clock back um, to the world banking crisis in 2009. We had the coalition government at the time um, with Lib Dems and the Tories. Uh, George Osborne was the, uh, the chancellor at the time, and he reigned back on all public expenditure. Local government had its um, local government settlement funding cut by, well, in two bits, but it, it, the up sum of that was about 40% cuts. The NHS came out of it a bit better. We had uh, flatline funding in the NHS, but to survive the NHS needs about a 4% uplift per annum. So in the 10 years following the banking crisis, the run into COVID, we had flatline funding. We reined back on training. We Nobody funded the placements. The bursary was taken away uh, and lots of other damage was done as well. I mean, that's when the uh, refurbishment and renewal uh, problems uh, started and that's when we stopped buying capital equipment. I mean, the, the the whole NHS was knackered during that period. Uh, and then, of course, as I say, we went into COVID. Now we come out the other side of COVID. We've got about 400 nurses who are leaving every week. Um, the number of uh, applications to join the NHS as a nurse have dropped by 8%. Now, I've never known the applications on an annual basis fall. They always go up every year. This is the first time I've ever known it that they've fallen. So, I mean, it, it, it was bad before COVID. It's much worse now. Um, but that, that's an astonishing figure, an 8% drop that, you, that you've never seen before. Again, there must be research going on into why this is. Does it just come up with the same, you know, Brexit and bad pay? Or there are other well, things that nurses are saying. It's, well, it's it's kind of interesting. If I mean, if you survey nurses, I mean, pay is important. Of course, it is. Um, but if we put that to one side, uh, it's all the, the vocational elements of of the job are important. Training, development, impro- and and going on courses and that kind of stuff. That's all very important as well. Um, but of course, now what we're, what we're seeing is that nurses want more flexible rotors. I mean, by and large, nurses now work three days a week, twelve to fourteen hours back to back, and that's. I mean, it suits some. We've got kids, and doesn't suit others. They want flexible rot- rostering. That's really important. Um, no, very few hospitals provide any creche facilities, which is really important. Um, and if you look at what I mean, just just look at what's happening in this month. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm so pleased. I'm not running a hospital right now, but right now, all the people who work in a hospital who've got kids effectively have to go on holiday between the, the second week of July and the first week of September. So you've got effectively a four a four week block where if you if you're running a hospital with say I don't know twenty thousand people and ten thousand have got kids and they've got to take their holidays at this moment at this in this window you're going to lose half your staff over that four to five week window because they're on holiday and that makes it in, in absolutely totally impossible then you have to get the agency staff in you, you if you don't use you you leave you you if you don't use it you lose it so i mean the the whole thing is just one great big mess and on top of that of course, you know, people see in the paper about nurses and the job that they do and, you know, inspire some, but a lot, of, a lot of others are saying, you know what, I'm not going to get myself into, you know, God knows how much debt to do this job. Uh, and on a band five, I'm going to be earning, you know, 23,000 a year. I could be stuck on a band five and not get up to 30,000. Uh, it's not worth it.
The Select Committee report heavily criticised what it called the absence of a credible government strategy on the understaffing. What would a credible strategy look like? Well, uh, you'd have to start with, uh, I mean, if I could just say it's a bit rich, actually, this, this document, <laughs> because the chairman of the Select Committee was none other than our good friend Jeremy Hunt, the longest serving Secretary of State for Health since Florence Nightingale came to work on a bus. He was he was in the job for nearly 10 years, and he never came out with a workforce plan, but suddenly now he's, uh, you know, he's in the, or he was in the running to be the leader of the of the great Tory mess. He, he just you know suddenly saying oh where's the workforce plan okay what does a workforce plan look like well you can't have a workforce plan until you know what work looks like the 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 work in the nhs is is split between the good old basics of of care and washing people's bottoms and all the rest of it and an enormously sophisticated repertoire of things that nurses have to do these days so you know you have to think carefully about the the type of training that nurses have to do then you have to position it in the the external environment of work what else can highly qualified intelligent articulate young people do other than being a nurse what's the competition in the sector what have you got to do well you know in the middle of uh, inflation running at about i don't know what's it going to be 13 15% you can't really give them a 4.5% pay rise and get away with it so it's a, it's a very complicated thing to produce a workforce plan now of course once you produce a workforce plan then you have to say well if if we need, you know, 10 more nurses and they're all going to earn £100, we need 10 times £100 to train them and give them their wages. And that means that the Treasury are going to say, whoa, 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 wait a minute, we don't really want bad news about more nurses and paying them more and recruiting more because we haven't got any money. So the, one of the reasons, in fact, the principal reason why the NHS hasn't got a workforce plan is that the Treasury would never sign up to the consequences of a workforce plan. Now, here's the thing. You know, now we're saying, oh, well, Sajid Javid asked the Department of Health and NHS England and Health Education England if they would be uh, if they would uh, get together and produce a workforce report. Note the word report. It is not a plan. So we will have a workforce report. It will take about a year to write it, a year to publish it. That'll take us up to the next election. So we still won't have a workforce plan. And you know, God knows what happens after that. So it's a mess, and no one wants to clear it up. Arthur, your wife is a public health doctor. What's she bringing home about work problems with an NHS? Uh, well, it, a lot of it is reflects what, what Roy has just explained in much greater detail than I would have. But, uh, I mean, it's you see the long tail of these decisions. So uh, it, I'm glad Roy mentioned Jeremy Hunt because, of course, the other thing that Jeremy Hunt did was took on what were then so-called junior doctors. But, of course, as, as Roy and others would know, Sometimes somebody classed as a junior doctor will be someone who's got a lot of experience and is and is given a lot of responsibility in a hospital. Uh, so that famous junior doctor's dispute, which is now, I think, uh, probably eight years or seven or eight years ago, um, the tale of that, a lot of people uh, decided to get out of the profession. They may not have got out immediately, but or they looked to find other types of work. So they might have moved into uh, areas like public health where you're, you're less um, affected by the clinical front line and the questions around the um, overtime issues and so on are, are less immediate. So you're seeing the tail of that thing. And then, of course, uh, again, the tale of Brexit and, and, and COVID. So I, it seems to me that this is a classic example of where people um, make decisions five or six years ago and they sort of think, well, it's going to be OK and it will certainly see me through to the next election. Uh, but but it doesn't, you know, sooner or later you, you start to pay the price. And 
and certainly from from what I know of my, my wife's colleagues and friends, there's you know there are some real morale issues, and and it's it's just a very very um, difficult environment. Justin, in the ongoing uh, Promise Festival of the Conservative Leadership fight, Liz Truss says she's going to scrap the 1.25% rise in national insurance that began in April, which of course was a 40% rise, not a percentage point rise. It was projected to raise an extra 12 billion a year, and it was mainly going to go to the NHS. Where's this all going to come from if Liz gets uh, her way? Well, I don't think we know. Um, I mean, partly this is because the entire tenor of this campaign has been complete fantasy island economics, where Truss and, you know, to be even-handed, increasingly Sunak are just promising one thing after another. So it's been the, you know, the levy you mentioned there. It's about suspending the green energy levy that's being added onto energy bills. The, even the IFS has said, you know, we're unable to calculate a cost going forward for these things because they still haven't been fully set out. There's scrapping of levies on bills. So they just don't know. But mm. I think she's obviously just working on the assumption that the mere promise of cutting tax on anything has this sort of Pavlovian effect on the selectorate that they're talking to. I'm just hoping that, for once, I'm hoping that politicians are lying to me and they'll say they're going to do a load of stuff and then they'll get in and they won't do it. I mean, one sort of feels like they may be by circumstance rather than design yeah. because, you know, whether you know, Truss or Sunak wins and whatever they promise at this point, they are going to be mugged by reality at some point. Yeah. You know, they are going to collide with the walls of that, whether yeah. they like it or not. Madeline, in May, uh, another government report identified climate change as the most important health threat of the century and asked healthcare workers to encourage your professional networks and regulatory bodies to declare a climate emergency, even though the government itself hasn't actually declared a climate emergency for the actual country. Is the climate crisis being given its due place in health planning, do you think? I don't think so. Um, as you said, we haven't seen really any interaction between the government and the health service on the issue of climate change. There's kind of two things at play here. So there's the adaptation question. We've seen 40 degree heat in the UK over the last few weeks. And our hospitals just aren't equipped to deal with that level of heat. We don't have hospitals that are built to deal with, you know, 30 degree heat indoors. We've got very vulnerable people being taken to hospital in heat like that and frankly it will make them worse if they have to be treated in temperatures like that so there's a kind of adaptation question about how you kind of transform the NHS estate to make it fit for the weather that we know is coming down the tracks and we've been far too slow in in kind of renovating NHS hospitals to deal with that but there's also the the kind of interplay between climate impacts and public health so um, issues like air pollution and flooding particularly there's been a lot of research um, on the link between flooding and mental health it's hugely detrimental to somebody's mental health if their house floods Um, the impact of air pollution on lung conditions there's emerging research about the impacts of kind of particulate matter pollution and NOx pollution on, you know, what what happens to lung disease and heart disease as a result of that. So really the kind of like the hard impacts of what we're doing to the planet and how that affects public health um, is not a debate that I really see happening. But the frustrating thing is that the more we do to address climate change, the better people's health will be. There's, you know, really clear research to demonstrate that. So it certainly is a conversation that needs to happen. And um, ministers need to think much more deeply about how those two issues intersect. But unfortunately, I don't think that's happening at the moment. The the NHS is the biggest carbon footprint of any organisation in Europe. Um, uh, it, it, it looks after a million people a day. They've all got to get to a hospital and away from a hospital. It has 1.4 million staff that have to go to work and away from work. Uh, plus, plus, it has 
8,000 drop-off points for uh, NHS supplies. Um, and that's all done with lorries chugging up and down the motorway. I mean, sorting that lot out is huge. You'd have to say to people, you can't visit your relatives in hospital anymore because of the carbon footprint. You'd have to say to people, it's a digital first um, NHS. We won't see you, first of all, uh, unless it's an emergency. Uh, so if it's you're going to see a GP or outpatients, it's all got to be done over um the internet and, and video calling. And I mean, it's a massive change to reduce the NHS's carbon footprint. By 2028, it's got to reduce its carbon footprint by 80%. And by 2040, it's got to be carbon neutral. It is a hell of a job and it's going to make a lot of people cry. Roy, the, the famously anti-strike Royal College of Nursing has just announced that it's going to ballot its members over staff pay about industrial action. The average frontline nurse is now more than £6,000 a year worse off than they were in 2010. Um, how likely is it that the strike's going to happen and what happens when nurses strike? Uh, it, it won't happen, uh, and uh, the uh, the uh, the government will just ride it out. Um, I, I don't think the nurses will. I mean, the junior doctors went on strike, and and that didn't go well for them, really. Um, and I don't think the the nurses will. Do. I mean, I think the nurses will look at the economy. They'll say, well, at least I've got a job. Um, maybe they'll do a bit of work to rule and fiddling about the margins, but I can't see the majority of the RCN going on strike. There's no doubt about it. There are some hotheads in the RCN who would like to go on strike, but I, I can't see it myself. I'll come back and eat my words if I have to, but I can't <laughs> see it. Just finally, can you see any grounds for optimism on what might happen with the NHS? I mean, we sort of roughly know who the next prime minister is going to be, and she doesn't seem very friendly towards it. No, absolutely. We've got Dizzy Lizzy and Dishy Rishi, the low-fat smoothie. I mean, neither of them have got any real idea about what they're going to do about the NHS, which is why they've kept off the topic. No, the NHS is in for a rough ride and a difficult time, and it's going to be difficult for patients. My concern is not the winter crisis that's coming. I'm worried about getting through August because of all the staff holidays, because of the exacerbations, uh, because of heat, more people coming into hospital, social services is on its knees. We won't fix the NHS unless Unless we fix social care. That's the problem. The, the system is silting up because we can't get elderly, frail people home safely and have them looked after because there aren't social services people to do it. Because if you work for social care and domiciliary care, something like that, you get paid £9 and a penny an hour. If you go down to Tesco's, you'll get paid £9.50, plus you get 20% off your groceries. Where are you going to work? Roy, one day we'll have you on for a cheerful segment, but I don't think it's going to, I don't think it's going to be soon. Thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure. Cheerio. Finally, it's a depressing world out there full of awful things and terrible ideas. So let's talk about using dead spiders as mechanical grippers on industrial production lines. That's right, the zombie robot spiders are coming. Engineers at Rice University in Houston found that deceased spiders offered the perfect architecture for small-scale, naturally-derived grippers, presumably not for picking up the teddy bear or the £10 notes at the fairground. Spiders are biodegradable. Using them as corpse claw machines, yes, there's even worse phrases than zombie robot spider, is better for the environment apparently this did not stop the experiment unnerving arachnophobes across the internet when the video spread justin how did you react to the video were you freaked out by necrobotics no not at all i mean i thought it was the most wonderful example of a scientific mindset that i just do not have as a sort of ponzi arts type um but it somebody was also... sat down somewhere and said what are we going to do with all these dead spiders but that's it it was 
It was so smart. I mean, I'm sure Madeline will approve, but it was literally using the dead body of a spider. I mean, amazing piece of upcycling. Literally waste nothing. Even that dead spider that's sort of, you know, bundled up in the corner of your room can get reused. They do actually kill the spiders, you know. They don't just sweep them off. What? Yeah, now you've changed your mind. I mean, just the way it works, apparently, (laughs) is that the spider's bodies are hydraulically based. And the reason the spider scrunches up when it dies is because it no longer has internal pressure to sting its legs out. And this is also why spiders can run very quickly and then stop because they run out of pressure. It has one set of muscles rather than opposing. Well, it's, li- it's a liquid-based yeah. internal hydraulic system. So so you kill the spider, and then you puff it up with air to make its legs stick out. And then you take the air out, and the legs come together as a grabber, and you it... can pick something up. I don't know who came up with this. Somebody's sitting at home going, can we use dead spiders to pick things? Well, so it's like, are you okay, mate? No, I looked into this, and they said they first tried it when they were moving labs. And this is my point. They they found a dead spider. Okay. And one of them had the brainwave. But it also shows that pertinent to this week, we've had people talking about, you know, useless degrees and, you know, what's the point of study? All the best scientific innovations like graphene at Manchester do come about when people are dicking about in the lab late in the evening. I just want to know why the guy or, or the woman who said, let's use dead spiders to pick things up, why were they not taken for counselling first rather than allowed to start dicking around with dead spiders? Well, because they're scientific types, Andrew. Their minds are on higher things. They then invented the monster mash. Well, of course, <laughs> examples of biomechanics in fiction are always very, very encouraging. The alien Robocop ghost in the shell, it always goes really, really well. I suppose, I mean, that's always the premise, isn't it? That creatures can be reanimated for human yeah. interest. It's sort of the Jurassic Park uh, principle. But, you know, and even sort of further back, as we you know, the first horror film, Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, you know, the somnambulist who was sort of brought to life for the uh, the scientists. Yeah, so the lesson always seems to be that these things eventually go rogue, develop a will of their own and indulge in unseen horrors. So uh, let's hope the spider lab are double checking the locks every night when they leave. Arthur, humans have been using animals for their own purposes for, you know, almost as long as humans have existed, of course, horses for transport, chickens for eggs. Why is using a dead spider to pick stuff up any different? Well, I suppose it isn't really, um, except that, you know, there is this, spiders do have the weird ability to terrify. Um, but I also, I was thinking about this because um, I'm sure I had one of those sort of fact books when I was a little kid. And there's something about spiders' webs which are ridiculously strong, aren't they? So if a spider's web was as big as a washing line, then it would be able to, you know, pick up the Empire State Building. I mean, obviously, that's not the fact, and everyone must now check Google to we, find we, out what we the We learned this is. from The Amazing Spider-Man. We know this. Yes, indeed, indeed. So um, spiders are clearly uh, just brilliant things. What, what makes it more disturbing? Is it the fact that it's a spider or the fact that we're using a dead thing for our purposes here, an obviously dead thing? I think it's as a spider because I'm, I sort of, I like to say I'm not an arachnophobe and, and, and I'm not really, but, um, when, when I, when I lived in the Caribbean, there were literally tarantulas there and, and they are terrifying. There's no, no way about it. Like ginormous spiders, even if you think you're not scared of them, I find, I think are quite scary. Yeah. You could probably pick up a car with one of those things. But I think also <laughs> it's that, you know, a lot of these things are arbitrary in the way we ascribe value to different animals. And, you know, the way that it's like, why do we feel comfortable eating certain animals, but not others, working mm. with certain animals, not others, as I found out when I, you know, paraded my chimpanzee through the uh, town centre. But there. <laughs> <laughs> Madeline, what, what do you make of uh, necrobotics? I mean, the name alone is like, welcome to the Download Death Metal Festival, isn't it? Necrobotics. I mean, they deserve a medal for the name alone. That was, yeah, yeah. really stand out. I mean, it's really macabre, isn't it? Mm. And... 
just like you were saying about the scientific mindset, some of the language around how the utility of the spiders was described was quite stomach churning. I think it said that they get a thousand repetitions out of a carcass before and the, the later repetitions are less efficient. So in other words, some legs start to fall off and they can't grip as well. So, I mean, that is really, you've got to have yeah. a kind of heart of steel to to really push forward that with that. But I think from a kind of environmental point of view, there's a slight issue with the recyclability of the spider at the end because I think they've got to insert some sort of chip and then glue it back together, which is probably not fully biodegradable. So, yeah, I think there needs some work before you can really sell it as a green solution. It's not necessarily the major issue on the green agenda. <laughs> what are we going to do with all these dead spiders? It's just like I don't understand the HR guiganess of it. It's like, genu- as you say, macabre and biomechanics as a sort of science fiction concept, has always been viscerally horrible. We should not use dead things as machines. And then yet tonight I'll be tucking into a pop shop. Well, so, and also, and it's if you think about this slightly differently, there's a big tradition in design engineering of biomimicry, you know, mm-hmm. where we take things from the natural world and replicate them for design solutions. So, I mean, the most obvious one is Velcro, you know, which famously was invented when a guy noticed like the sticky burrs from a bush sticking to his fabric on his clothing mm. being things you know the i mean the entire shape of an airplane is like you know, the toes on sort of adidas predator football boots i think you know based on these things so as i think it's quite arbitrary sometimes what we find creepy and what we find intriguing and marvelous personally as someone who's waging a nightly war on the slugs who are decimating my garden i'm surprised they didn't use them because nothing seems to stop those and nothing sticks to a thing like a slug i'm just like i was just surprised at the number of people who would think nothing of stomping on a spider if it appeared in their front room going oh no this is so terrible we can't use them in you know picking picking up microchips it's hypocrisy it's all hypocrisy anyway well look, i want to put it on record that i am against this and when the spiders start coming, I want to be protected. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. And that brings us to the end of this week's Bunker, which means it's time for the panel's escape routes. What books, films and other entertainments have given our panellists a break from the bruising world of politics and current affairs? Arthur. I hesitate to admit to this because we obviously we had an environmental focused uh, episode, which is great, which is a good thing. Um, But I am currently in Canada, which means I took a long haul flight to get here. So I'm just going to apologise to Madeline and I won't do it again. But I yesterday I saw a whale well i saw a whole load of whales because i went on a boat and watched whales and i know it's not i'm supposed to be talking about a book or a film but um it's the most extraordinary thing i i'm obviously loads of people have done this and i'm hardly the first but seeing these animals they're just so extraordinary and big and 
uh, incomprehensible and mysterious and brilliant. And so, anyway, that's been my big escape route, which will keep me going for months. What kind of whales were they? Well, well I, we saw various ones. The, the most impressive ones were minke whales, which um, I don't know why they're called that because they're, they're not small furry ones, but they're, they're, it's they're Peter Sellers, big. isn't it? Yeah, yeah, they're, they're huge. Uh, but we also saw beluga whales, which are very kind of sweet and an and, and amazing white colour. And then lots of dolphins as well. Amazing. Justin, how about you? Um, I've done nothing so glamorous or exciting, as is usually the case when you compare my life with Arthur's. Um, no, after the uh, non-stop sports marathon of the Women's Football Tour de France World Championship Athletics, I've just been immersed in the Commonwealth Games for the past week, which I've got to say has been absolutely brilliant, not just in terms of the sports, which has been really really top draw but i thought uh just the advert that it's been for birmingham which i think is an incredibly underrated city it's got everything you want in abundance and i think it's just it's been portrayed so brilliantly by the games it's been a really really good advert for it and particularly the opening ceremony where i was a bit unsure at first you know these things are always a bit legs akimbo when they start doing the kind of community theater bit and then at the point when they wheeled in a massive 50-foot-high satanic bull with revolving red eyes, yeah. whilst Tony Iommi from Black Sabbath played in the background, <laughs> I was completely sold on it. So I'm a, I'm a bit disappointed that they've moved the bull into the town centre in Birmingham now. So whenever they've been interviewing you know, celebrated Olympians and Michael Johnson and people... In the background, you can always see the bull with the head just sort of like lowing round from side to side and puffs of smoke coming out of his nostrils. Actual bull in the bull ring. Yeah. This is what we want. Madeline, how about you? Um, so I'm very late to the party with this, but I've just finished um, a book called Circe by Mad- Madeline Miller, which is a deep dive way back into Greek mythology. It sounds really dry, but it's kind of a feminist retelling of the myth of Circe and how she... Uh, her relationship with Odysseus on the island that she's banished to by her father, who is the sun god, Helios. And it's just, I mean, I didn't study classics, so um, I'm kind of new to ancient Greek and Roman mythology, but I read it, really enjoyed it, and then I read the Wikipedia page of what the actual um, story is according to, like, the kind of real Greek history. Um, And it is astonishing how misogynistic it is and just the kind of feminist retelling of, you know, what the world would be like if you saw it through a woman's eyes was really refreshing and it was also quite nice just to get my head out of modern day politics and kind of back to the pre-Lazarian age of yeah ancient yeah. Greece yes well mine uh, is a sharp contrast train wreck the Woodstock documentary on Netflix it where uh, it recounts the the staging of Woodstock 99 which probably considering all the environmental uh, themes we've talked about today, is the, the, the least environmentally friendly and most horrible thing you could possibly imagine. Not just because it's taking place on an airfield in uh, upstate New York, not just because everybody is throat deep in garbage by, by tea time on Friday, not just because it culminates with, with um, an overexcited crowd setting absolutely everything on fire, because the music is things like corn and Limp biscuit, which, you know, is its own form of landfill horror. And it's absolutely mesmerising. It's incredible. They keep saying, uh, the promoters keep saying, there's never been anything like this on the planet before. This is the first time this has ever happened. I'm like, we do this every year at Glastonbury and we clean all the crap up and we manage not to set anything on fire and we don't have Limp biscuit on. I mean, it's easy to do if you don't just go out there charging people 
four dollars for a bottle of water in 1999 price prices and ten dollars for a burrito in 1999 prices and stock it full of guys who just want to shout Woodstock bro and do the horn sign with their hands it is however an amazing compelling documentary and it will make you so glad that you didn't go and that's the end of this week's bunker thank you to Arthur Snell thank you Thank you to Justin Quirk. Thank you, Andrew. And thanks to our special guest, Madeline Cuff. Please do come again. Thank you. Listeners, we'll be back tomorrow with another Bunker Daily and the full-length show this time next week. If you enjoy what we're doing, please do consider supporting us on the crowdfunding site Patreon. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out more. You'll be helping us to pay hardworking journalists and producers, and you will get all the benefits, including a shout-out on the podcast like these. So it's hello from me to Nicholas Bull, Richard Walker and Martin Crawley. It's many thanks from me to John Lloyd, Sarah Lopez and Chris Rudd. And finally, big thanks and best wishes from me to Rokos Frangos, Colin Baines and Rich Riddle. We'll see you next time. The Bunker was produced and presented by Andrew Harrison with Justin Quirk and Arthur Snell. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis and the producers were Jacob Archbold, Jonas Sofronievich and me, Alex Reese, arachnophobe. The assistant producer was Kasia Tomashevich. Our marketing manager was Gina Richard. Music by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs> <laughs>